You are listening to National Security Law Today. We're recording this on the 15th day of Putin's attack on Ukraine. To date, we've learned some facts about the conflict that suggest gross violations of international law. As of right now, we've learned that Russia has used thermobaric bombs, cluster bombs, and as of this recording, he has threatened the use of nuclear weapons. The second thing that we've learned is that Russia has bombed numerous civilian targets, including hospitals, businesses, such as a shoe factory and apartment buildings. The third thing we've learned is that many of the soldiers in the Russian military are something called conscripts. Now, we need to consider where we are also in terms of technology. The Russian army and the Russian military generally possesses intercontinental hypersonic ballistic missiles. And long before the Ukraine conflict, Russian leaders threatened to, quote, incinerate the United States. We're also dealing in a time of artificial intelligence being used quite widely in all military efforts. Now, while satellites connect us digitally, both Russia and China now have a space force, which many military leaders believe is for the purpose of targeting satellites. Now, in the midst of this shocking assault on democracy, a United States senator called for Putin's assassination, potentially escalating the situation. What laws, treaties, and executive orders apply to Russia in this conflict and to anybody who would not push back against this autocratic megalomaniac? Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa, your host. My guest today is Judge James Baker, a man who has served every national security legal capacity that you can imagine, including as a National Security Council advisor, State Department lawyer, and chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. We're having Judge Baker today because he can explain the law of war and how it applies to the present conflict. Judge Baker, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much, Elisa. I would ordinarily say it's a pleasure to be here, but it's really quite unfortunate to be here talking about the law of armed conflict and war crimes in the context of the present conflict. So let me say it's a pleasure to see you and have the opportunity to talk about these important areas of law. Well, I don't think this heralds the sunset of the greatest experiment in democracy in American history, but it is awful in ways that I don't think any of us could have predicted just six months ago. But let's do this for our audience. Let's start with the basics. That's always a good place to start. What international laws and treaties are really applicable to the current situation? Let me start with the law of armed conflict. We can talk about the UN Charter as well, but I think we'll come at this with the law of armed conflict which is also known as the law of war and international humanitarian law. And there's two aspects to the law and war. Some people treat them as one and some people treat them as disaggregate. And others use Latin to describe them, which is a terrible idea because I don't know about you, but I don't speak Latin. But there's two bodies of law. One is the body of law that governs the right to go to war. When can you resort to force? And the other body of law is that law that applies to the means and methods of warfare once you're in hostilities. And I think for our audience today, I think let's focus on that second, right? Because the first is clearly, did Russia have the right to invade Ukraine? Did international law provide a justification for that? The answer is, of course, not. 
And we'll talk about that in a moment in the context of war crimes. So what is the law of armed conflict? It's the law that applies to how you conduct hostilities once you're in them. Uh, notice that it's called international humanitarian law. That's one of the terms for how we describe it. That's because the goal of the law of armed conflict is not to try and eliminate war. That was tried before with the Washington Treaty, but it's trying to limit the effects of war on both combatants and non-combatants, in particular civilians. Um, that's why it's called international humanitarian law, an effort to make hostilities, which is inherently brutal, as humanitarian as possible. So let's be very clear here. The law of armed conflict is agreed to by whom and where is it memorialized? Sure. There's three things I'd say about this. The law of armed conflict is found in treaty. And here we're talking about the Geneva Conventions and Geneva line of treaties and the Hague Conventions and the Hague line of treaties. It's found in customary international law and it's found in U.S. criminal law. It is real law. So let's talk about some basics because there's some very specific rules and then there's some very general rules that apply in all contexts. And I'd like to start with the general rules, which are the principles of targeting. And this is something that you don't have to be a legal expert to understand that Russia's well off the law in this area. There are sort of four basic principles when you're engaged in warfare about targeting. One, you have to distinguish and discriminate between combatants and non-combatants, between military objects and civilian objects and civilians, right? So the indiscriminate firing on cities is not distinguishing between the two. Intentionally targeting civilians, if that is being done, is not complying with the principle of distinction. The next principle is one of proportionality. Even if you are attacking a military object, and we'll agree for the purpose of discussion here that it is a military object, the consequences to civilians cannot be disproportionate or excessive in relation to the direct and concrete military advantage to be gained by attacking that military object. So for example, to use a poor or simple example, if you're taking sniper fire from a building, you can't level the town to destroy the sniper and all of the town. That would be disproportionate. That'd be excessive in relation to the military advantage to be gained by dealing with the sniper. The last two principles that ought to be highlighted here are the principles of necessity and minimization of suffering. And necessity is you can only attack targets that are necessary to attack. So if you can avoid attacking them, you're obliged to do so. It's kind of related to the principle of distinction in military object, but you, you should only attack what you need to to accomplish the military mission. And then minimization of suffering is what it is. And this is where questions about thermobaric weapons might come in. The law generally regulates, and in some cases prohibits, the use of weapons that will cause undue suffering. And when we talk about thermobaric weapons, we can talk about that. That's not the only issue with thermobaric weapons, but that is one of the potential issues. Let me get more basic. Is Russia part of the Geneva Convention? Did they agree to it? Were they part of that? And people must be sitting there scratching their heads right now. Sure. Russia is a member of the Geneva Conventions, a party to the Geneva Conventions. They're also a party to the Convention on Conventional Weapons, including Protocol 3, which addresses incendiary weapons, which is the treaty law that is most on point and apt to the use of thermobaric weapons. 
But it's very important to note here, I know people want to say, ask the question, is someone a member of a party to a treaty or not? A lot of this law, in the U.S. view, most of this law is also customary international law. The principles I just outlined are customary international law, whether you are a signatory to Protocol 1 to the Geneva Conventions, the U.S. takes the view, as do most Western states and law-abiding states, that these are customary international law principles. So they would apply even if you were not a member of the relevant Hague Convention or the Geneva Conventions. So it's a two-four here. Russia is both a party and this is binding as a matter of customary international law as well. In some cases, as we'll likely discuss, it is relevant whether you're a party or not. As for example, if we're talking about the jurisdiction to prosecute and the ICC, then there is a distinction and an important one as to whether you're a party or not to the Rome Statute or the Rome Treaty. But with respect to these general principles about targeting and then specific rules like no targeting hospitals, no targeting cultural sites and things like that, that's customary international law as well as found in treaty. Okay, well, I would just point out that the BBC is reporting this morning, uh, I believe, a second hospital that has been attacked. Now, uh, I will say that it's my understanding that the messaging in Russia appears to be designed to justify under the treaty what they're doing. And the way they're doing that, it appears to me, is they're claiming falsely that many of these locations are nothing more than that they've been emptied of the civilian patients and the like, and that they're now just serving as military facilities, which is you know, a common refrain in wartime. Sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. But let's, let's move on for just a second. We're talking about conventions that were widely agreed to. We're talking about customary law. I mean, everybody's looking at this man right now and they think he is an autocratic megalomaniac leader. But most importantly, those who have studied Putin carefully that we have interviewed on this show have said that he loathes international bodies, including the United Nations. He sees them as mere extensions of the United States government and its policies. He's particularly upset about the European Union, doesn't like it at all. He's part, he was behind a social media effort that supported Brexit. He has said multiple times that he finds NATO's presence in his backyard to be a threat. Others describe it as an existential threat to him. He's talked about broken promises. Now he's raised a lot of ancient grievances in his rambling speeches. But let's go to NATO, which seems to be his interest. He seems most upset about NATO. What can NATO do and what may we be obligated as NATO members to do if he continues his campaign and pushes, for example, into Latvia, Moldova, and maybe even Poland. He certainly has spoken about NATO, as you've indicated, and other instruments of public order. There is a school of thought that says that the NATO issue is not really the issue, but rather his desire to reestablish a czarist empire or a Soviet empire. And I I can't remember who said it, but someone said the comment about Russia with Ukraine is an empire. Russia without Ukraine is nothing. It's more sophisticated than that. And so that's clearly a motivator as well. With respect to the NATO treaty, so when you say what what is NATO's obligations, and, and the president of the United States has made it clear that the United States would uphold its NATO obligations 
This derives from the Washington Treaty from 1949. And as anybody who has been awake and conscious in the past 14 days, 15 days, knows Article 5 is the article that is most relevant here, although Article 11 is also relevant. But Article 5 is the one that basically states that an armed attack against one member is an attack against all members. And that's the collective self-defense. International lawyers will recognize that that's the exercising of collective self-defense. They'll also recognize the phrase armed attack which also appears in the UN Charter. At the time the treaty was being negotiated, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee was being consulted, actively consulted, and they expressed concern, members of the committee expressed concern about what was in the preamble at the time, which was the notion that the treaty would be implemented in accordance with the constitutional processes of the nations in question meaning how would Article 5 relate to the congressional war power and the tension or non-tension with the executive branch and the president's war power? Would Article 5 resolve the constitutional questions involved when the use of force is implicated? Or is that a matter for U.S. constitutional process to deal with? So the Foreign Relations Committee, as I understand it, they encouraged Article 5 to be modified by saying, as each state deems necessary. So that gets at one, yes, an attack against one is an attack against all, but each state will deem what's necessary in response because it might be a cyber attack. It might be an intrusion, a military intrusion. An attack can come in many different forms. And then Article 11, which applies to the whole treaty, states that the treaty shall be ratified and its provisions carried out by the parties in accordance with the respective constitutional processes. So in theory, the treaty does not answer the constitutional law question, which is whether the president can authorize the use of a military response following an Article 5 trigger. However, I think the argument is very strong, and President Biden obviously thinks it's very strong as well for a number of reasons. If I were the president's lawyer, I'd say that he's constitutional authority is very solid in this regard for different reasons. But one of them is the foreign relations impact, right? He's the chief executive, right. commander in chief, and he has both enumerated and implied authority in the foreign relations area. And the United States willingness, ability and political will to uphold Article 5 is essential to U.S. foreign relations. So it's not just the president's commander in chief authority that is implicated here but his foreign relations authority. And I would note that if you go back, now this is where you're gonna be grumpy at me for getting into lecture mode. If you note William Howard Taft's theory of the constitution, he said, uh, I'm gonna paraphrase, that the president has very broad authority to engage in defensive hostilities and very limited authority to engage in offensive hostilities. And if you're in an article five scenario, you're in a defensive posture, right? NATO is a defensive alliance, not an offensive alliance. And that should be noted here as well. But of course, what really matters is what does the president of the United States think of his constitutional authorities? And ultimately, what do his lawyers, what will they advise him on? If I were advising him, I would say he is on a solid constitutional basis to exercise our Article 5 obligations found in the treaty. Right. And even the drafters and in some of the Federalist Papers use the word he's the sole organ of foreign affairs. Which treaties 
unequivocally are. Yeah, that um, so, Kurt is right. And executive branch lawyers love that phrase. Even I, who just said that the president is very broad authority here, would not describe him as the sole organ here. But I take your point that he is broad authority. So I think a reasonable interpretation, regardless of sort of how you see it, would be that he would have the authority to act in this situation in accordance with Article 5 of the treaty. Absolutely. And everybody should know it. And he has signaled so. And that and that is firm position. But it's important to talk this through in advance because you don't want to have that debate in the moment of crisis. You want to have it well established and understood in advance of crisis. Okay, let's go back for a second. I'd like to go back in time. Now, if you talk to any of the sort of older spooks, they would tell you that when Russia was granted a seat on the UN Security Council in 1991, it was really the beginning of the end. Apparently, it was given, I guess, as a reward in theory, or you know, there was hope that we had come to the end of the Soviet era. But there were also many thinkers on the left and the right at the time who pointed out that KGB stalwarts inside of Russia were already claiming power by divvying up state assets, including oil and gas, which we now know were given to certain oligarchs, perhaps with on condition that they surrender them back to the state if called upon to do so. We don't really know. But let's talk for just a moment about, if you have an opinion about this, is Russia's seat on the United Nations Security Council and what it may mean for the United States' ability to gain global consensus for any action going forward. And then lastly, I think an important part of that is, can we get them kicked off? Well, let me uh, give you my understanding of the arguments one way or the other. They're not generally known. And this goes back when the ordinarily under doctrines of state succession in international law, when a government changes, a, a government in a country that is a member to something under international law remains a member under international law. So the Soviet Union then becomes Soviet Union II. Uh, there'd be no debate in international law that they're the successive state um, and that they would retain the UN Security Council seat. The argument as to why they shouldn't have ended up in that seat is that Russia is not the successor state to the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union both imploded and dissolved, and therefore the seat should not have automatically gone to Russia. It should have been determined as to who should get the seat by the UN General Assembly, as it turns out, because Article 18 of the Charter gives the UN General Assembly authority over the rights and privileges of members, as well as expulsion or entry of members, see Taiwan. And when the uh, Soviet Union did dissolve, the majority of the, of the states that then reasserted their independence agreed that Russia would take the UN Security Council seat. And President Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin, sent a letter to the UN at the time saying that's what was going to happen. So on the one hand, the argument would go like this. Because Russia was not, in fact, the successive state to the Soviet Union, which had disappeared, uh, they should not have had the seat. On the other hand, having written the letter saying we're going to take the seat and the UN General Assembly and the UN accepting that at the time, they did not vote on it or, or vote it down. It becomes part of the fabric now of, of the UN. It's a little late, some would say, and I'm sure there's a doctrine 
found in international law that is a Latin phrase of some sort that says, you know, at some point you have to get on with it and accept that what's happened has happened in that regard. However, as to your second question, I would draw our audience's attention to Article 18. So this is the uh, General Assembly, and it, it sort of lists the some of their powers, and they include the admission of new members to the United Nations, the suspension of the rights and privileges of membership, the expulsion of members, and questions relating to the operation of the trusteeship system. So that's not relevant here. So in theory, there is an argument that in a textual argument for sure, that the UN General Assembly could address the membership of Russia, uh, its rights and privileges, including the right and privilege of being on the Security Council. I'm not sure what the, you know, this is a tricky one because uh, the United States is also on the Security Council and we wouldn't want a process and it would not be a very stable process if every time the states generally disagreed, the UN General Assembly disagreed with a permanent member of the UN, uh, the Security Council, then they decide to vote them off the Security Council. That then becomes something of an international law game show. So there's problems with asserting or exercising the Article 18 argument here. On the other hand, if you are arguing the other side of it, you'd say, if not now, when, right? If this isn't a violation, a gross violation of all the tenants that are founded in the charter, both the humanitarian tenants, as well as the state territorial integrity and independence of states tenants, if not now, then when? That's a question for policymakers to consider. I think there is an argument that can be made both ways as a matter of legal policy. Naturally, the question that follows is who on the United Nations would make that decision. And I I raise that, of course, because we're also dealing with superpowers, China and India now, who have been quite reluctant to react to Russia, perhaps the ways that we would prefer they react. So on this question, I would not pretend to be the world's leading expert in UN charter in the procedural aspects of the General Assembly and the Security Council. I can read plain English, however, and I would refer the audience to Article 18. And I I would note that Article 18 was invoked when China took the Security Council seat in 1972 and Taiwan lost its membership to the United Nations. So we've seen Article 18 invoked, at least in that instance. This battle is going to be won with the will of the Ukrainian people to defend themselves. I was very impressed in the days running up to the invasion. I was impressed with the fire discipline, which reflects professionalism of the Ukrainian military when the Russians were trying to draw them in to engage in firefight, both an artillery fight and a ground weapons fight out in the Donbass when the Russians attacked that kindergarten, among other sites. And the Ukrainians... Uh, knowing full well what was going on, it's very hard to do, but the units out there held their fire. They were following the rules of engagement, and that is reflective of a uh, military that wants to both follow the law and is professional. So my point here is I don't want to create false hope to people that, that the answer to this conflict is to go to the UN and have debates over membership That might be helpful, but what's most helpful is the will of the Ukrainian people to defend their nation and to defend their independence and the rule of law. And and that's going to be decided on the ground in the streets of Ukraine. Well, if I had to bet on who is braver, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky or Putin, 
surrounded as he is by considerably more firepower. I guess my money would be on Zelensky and that. But let's let's go on to what else is available. And let's talk for a second about the National Security Act of 1947, as now amended. Obviously, that was drafted at the end of the Second World War. You want to give a little historical context since we're now you know, entering a potentially global conflict. And uh, what tools does has it given us? And what tools would have any efficacy in ending the present conflict? Well, here I would work back from the president's toolkit generally, not forward from the National Security Act. And that's going to include diplomacy, uh, economic instruments, which we've seen put in play, including sanctions. Then we would have law enforcement options, uh, military options, and intelligence options. And it's the National Security Act in 1947, as amended, includes the authority for much of the intelligence toolkit. And there's other authorities as well. And then Title 10, of course, provides additional authority for the military instrument, as does the Constitution itself in both instances. What I see here, though, is not the absence of an identification of tools. We know that the U.S. military has the capacity to do certain things, including defend the NATO countries and including uh, defend countries on the border of NATO. The real question is, which is the appropriate instrument to use in this context, right? I like to say that don't treat things as a paradigm trap. In each instance, you should use all the tools of national security. The question is, in which context? And what we've seen here is that the president is concerned about escalating, undue escalation or unnecessary escalation, or what we're really talking about is escalation that could lead to potential nuclear exchange, which we clearly want to avoid. I think I'll avoid going through each individual tool. Uh, I can, I can, I'm quite confident they're all available as a matter of law. The question is whether they are prudent and wise to use in the current context. I think what lawyers can do to help here is to be ahead of the curve and understand what the arguments may be two days from now, three weeks from now, and so on. So we're not caught unaware, caught for the first time thinking about the president's constitutional authority to defend Finland if Finland is attacked or the president's constitutional authority to transfer a particular weapon system. Here, we would also look to the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961. And if Todd Buckwald were here, I would ask him to review the entirety of the act in two minutes or less, which is an an essential authority for providing uh, military assistance and training and so on. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.